Those little people just make me smile. I love that. Singing a song that's down in her soul. I love that. That's really good. Okay, 22nd. Today's the 22nd. I like Proverbs, so you get a proverb. Today I chose verse 10. Cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. Wow. Okay. It's the word of God. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I pray that today our minds would be sharp, that, Lord, our hearts would be positioned and ready, and our lives would somehow come into better, con- to conform better with what we read and hear. Let your spirit speak to us, Lord, through the pages of Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a guy in Michigan, um, I mean, I read a lot of stuff. I don't, I, I, I heard a story about this guy in Michigan who lived to well over 100 years of age, and some people say that his longevity was because he had such a cheerful outlook on life, and everybody knew him as this happy-go-lucky guy, and he, they called him Uncle Johnson. Uh, he's not my uncle or anything, but he went by Uncle Johnson. And the story goes that one day he was gardening and, and um, singing and singing praises and just kind of real chipper. And uh, one of the neighbors walked by and her- hearing that said, hey, you know, you seem extra happy today. And his, his, his comment was, I am happy and here's why. And he, he makes this comment. He says, if the crumbs, crumbs of joy that fall um, from the master's table into this world are this wonderful, I wonder what the whole loaf will be like in glory. I mean, I think if I was the guy who created creation and designed the heavens and the earth. <laughs> what a joke, right? But if I was that guy, I, I would not have had the wisdom or the temerity to invent death. I wouldn't. I, I mean, I'm like almost all Christians who, pursuing and groaning for the return of Christ, hope that it happens while I'm alive so I won't have to face death. Oh, come on. <laughs> You're all right there with me. I mean, we're all going, hey, it'd be, it'd be fine with me, God, if you wanted to come now. I mean, um, but I mean, it's just, but here's the thing. Death is actually a blessing. And here's why. 1 Corinthians 15.50 teaches us that, that, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God because it's corrupt. As good as you might look right now, and you look awfully good, You can put on your Sunday best go to meet and close. (laughs) And here's the thing. No matter how good you can make yourself um, look, anything that's capable of decay cannot inherit what's incorruptible. We have to make that change. There's a book called One Minute After You Die by uh, a guy named Aaron Lutzer. I want to read just a passage from there, his comment. He says, Only on this side of the curtain is death our enemy. Just beyond the curtain, the, mom, the, the monster turns out to be our friend. The label death is still on the bottle, but the contents are eternal life. Death is our friend because it reminds us that heaven is near. How near? As near as a heartbeat, as near as an auto accident, as near as a stray bullet, or as near as a plane crash. If our eyes could see the spirit world, we might find that we, have, we are already at its gates. But death is not the end of the road. It's the bend in the road. It leads to somewhere. We find out that the tomb, the grave, is really the entrance into life. Now, the only way we know that, the only way that we could ever see that is by looking through the lens of Scripture. It's only by looking through the lens of the Word of God that we understand anything about this life, death, the afterlife, and heaven. Only through that lens. I'm kind of a movie guy. 
I have a lot of movies. I like to watch movies. I don't get as much time to watch them as I'd like to. I would sit around and do nothing but movies if I had no responsibilities and knew nobody, okay? But um, there was a, there, I like action movies, and um, there was a movie in 1999 that came out and created quite a, quite a buzz called The Matrix. Maybe, maybe you saw The Matrix. And um, it was an interesting action movie. The premise is a guy saves the world, right? Okay, like almost all action movies, the premise is. But this one was interest, uh, of interest because of, of some little subplots. In, like, for example, just a list of the character names. So anybody here ever seen that movie? You can admit in church that you've been to a movie. God, you know, God, God will still take you to heaven if you've seen a movie. It's really okay. And um, I hope. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> So there's all these little subplots in this movie, including like um, the names of the characters. Okay, there's a character named the Oracle, a character named Trinity, a character named Morpheus, and the 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 main character is a guy named Neo, which is an anagram for one. And all through the movie, they're referencing him as the one. Okay, maybe you saw this movie, but there's this this seminal moment in this movie where. Um, he's, he's talking to another one of the main characters, and the main character kind of knows everything that's going on. And he holds out his hands, and in one hand, he's got a blue pill, and the other hand, he's got a red pill. And he, and he gives Neo this choice. He says, you know, you take the blue pill, and the story ends here. You wake up tomorrow morning, and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the blue pill, go your merry way. But take the red pill, and he makes this reference to Alice, Alice in Wonderland. You're going to see how deep the hole goes because we're going to get to the truth here. The red, all I'm going to offer you here with the red pill is the truth. And we live today in a world filled with people that just want the blue pill. They want to go to sleep and wake up believing whatever they want to believe in their little bubble of belief, even though it really has no basis in reality. And very, very few people have peered beyond and um, into looking what is the really real world. And I, I hear people say, well, I don't believe in the supernatural. I live in the real world. And I'm thinking, okay, this world is real. But there is an even more real world beyond what you see. And it's more permanent. The last couple of weeks, we've been in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we've learned some things about death. And I encourage you, if you haven't heard this, I mean, it sounds scary, teaching on death. It's really not. It's encouraging what the Word tells us about it. Um, and uh, the messages here are always available online. You can get a CD if you want. It's free. There's no charge. Just to help. If you, if you missed, I encourage you to do that. But here are some of the things that we learned from Scripture, that when we die, our relationship with Christ is actually becomes deeper. We become closer. And after we die, there's this great reunion. Um, believers in Christ are going to re reunite with their mom or their dad or their brothers or their sisters or their friends or their relatives if they were also believers. There will be a great big reunion in heaven. And we also touched on the idea of the fact that there's going to be this future resurrection that we will experience. But here's this question that comes up so often after we die and before that resurrection, what's it going to be like? What are we going to look like? What's our form going to be? Well, let's, let's wade into that and see. And we're going to get some help from um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And for the first time we're going to go through this, we're just going to skim this and we'll come back to it a little bit. So follow along. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. For we know 
that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Stop for a second. Let's go back and start over. But I want you to wipe from your mind the perception that this is talking about 9231 183rd Avenue Southwest, Rochester, Washington, or whatever house you live in. Wipe that idea from your mind and start thinking about this house. Because this is not talking about the, the house where carpenters built your house, okay? So let's start over. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we, are, we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So Paul, in this passage, brings up three important truths. The first one is our destination. The second one is our frustration. And the third one is our affirmation. You know, what we know, why we groan, and when we're confident, which is always. So I'm going to start with the first one there, our destination, what we know. Verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent... All through the scriptures, when, um, the word, when, when the scriptures describe our physical body, it uses a word that describes a temporary dwelling place. So a tent is a great translation. Our, our, this tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, don't read that and think that instead of carpenters building your house in heaven, that God is going to get out a T-square or a speed square and cut the boards off and nail them personally. That's not the picture here. It's not about a structure, okay? And I, and I read this and I think, you know, I love the fact that how, have you ever noticed how frequently Paul uses the phrase, we know? You don't read about Paul saying, I got my fingers crossed, I guess, I hope, it would be great if. No, he uses, he's the unambiguous, definite language. We know, we know. First Thessalonians, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, ignorant anymore, brethren. We got that the last couple of weeks. And um, you know, he's say, basically saying, let me dispel this ignorance because I want you to know that you know. And, and here's what he wants us to know, according to verse 1, that when a Christian leaves this earth, we know that we go to heaven. He wants us to know that when we move from this tent, this physical body, we go to a more permanent house. These first century people hearing this passage, um, they completely understood this analogy because, uh, I mean, everybody there that heard these words understood what was going on. The first century people, it was very, very common. A lot of people lived in tents. And there were a lot of nomadic dwellers. There still are some today in the Middle East, the Bedouins. And um, these people would pitch their tents and their animals would graze and feed for a while until there was no more food there. And then they would just kind of move on and pitch their tent in another place. And, um, you know, in fact, and also the analogy works for Paul because Paul was actually a professional 
tent maker by trade. So the analogy here is very, very clear to these people. They're, they're seeing that, that, our, that, that one dwelling uh, is temporary, the tent, and one is permanent, that's the house. One is flimsy, the tent. One is sturdy, it's a building. One is weak, the tent, and one is strong, the building. And any Jewish person hearing this analogy would have also immediately started thinking um, and relating back to the tabernacle in the wilderness because you know, that's where God was actually worshipped in a tent. A fancy one, nonetheless, but a tent. And then until they moved to a more permanent location, which was called the temple. And in, in Judaism, the temple was known as the house. They called it the house. And that's what they called it. So um, the principle here in verse 1 is real simple. The way we look when we die is not the way we're going to look forever. <laughs> Smile about that, would you? I mean, you look good now, but it's going to be better. Okay, so I mean, I mean the real Terry, you're looking at my tent, the real Terry is spirit, and um, you know today you're able to, to see my tent, and I know some of you have got a much better tent, and I know they got these new lightweight models you can get at REI, you know, and they're more durable, and they can stand up to more wind. Um, but you know, and you and I can communicate because we have this temporary form, and we can talk and relate to each other, but it's temporary. If you've ever camped, you know, you look like a smart group of people, but maybe a couple people here have gone camping in a tent. Um, you know, it's a lot of fun for a while, but not all that long. Lisa and I, you know, we started. We like to go camping, and the very first time we would go camping, we started with tarps, and then we graduated up to a tent. We bought this nice tent from Sears. This was back in the dark ages when there was such a place called Sears. And um, um, is there still a Sears anymore? Oh, where? Just, I'm just curious. Okay. So um, anyway, so we moved up to a tent, and I remember one time we were camping in our tent in Grand Teton Park, which we still go to. We, 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 it was one of the first times we went there. We took our children, the ones we had, and it was Ben, who at the time was three, and Rachel, who has gone into the other room because her ch- children or, or whatever. Um, and she was six months. And Grand Teton Park in June or July, whatever it is, in the, in the, by 10 in the morning, it's maybe 80. But by four in the morning, it's maybe 25. And we didn't know this, and we got there the first night, and it was like 28, I think, in the middle of the night, and, and we were afraid our children were going to freeze to death. I, I just remember Lisa took Ben, and he got into her sleeping bag with her, with her and, he, and, and Rachel was in, in the sleeping bag with me. I mean, and we kept them alive through the night. <laughs> but we were in a tent, and, you know, it's fun for a while, but pretty soon you start, you start thinking about, well, I like this camping thing, but I also like showers, walls, beds, and, um, you know, a wall between me and a bear would be good, you know. The funny thing about camping, a lot of funny stuff we'll do in camping. I remember the first time we bought a travel trailer, and the salesman says to me as, he, as we're about ready to drive away from the, par- the, the lot, he says, hey, you need an emergency kit. Um, emergency kit, if you have a, tra- a tra- trailer, is... A, a garbage bag, some garbage bags, and some duct tape. You can fix almost anything with those. I don't know what that meant. But, um, but, but your body, your body is like a tent. It's temporary. And after a while, while the threads kind of start to unravel, and um, the flaps can maybe become a little bit more prominent, and the tent starts to leak. <laughs> it's just the nature of a temporary dwelling place. It's interesting how some people want to make their tent last forever or at least look like it's brand new, you know? 
we'll stretch out the flaps, and we'll nip and tuck, and we'll dye the threads, you know. So Paul calls our body, I should stop digging, he calls our body a tent, a tent. James, I think, takes it a step further, and I think, I think you know, it, it, this is one of the best, most accurate descriptions of what life is like. James 4.14, he says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. It's not only temporary, it's a very, very short version of temporary. It's like, if it was cold in here, if it's colder in here, um, you would see this mist come out, this fog, and it would disappear. There's my life. There's another generation and another one. That's what James says. It's just a puff and it's over. It's a great description. And we're temporary. Our bodies are, our, our bodies are actually designed to not last. I could have said that phrase differently. I could have said our bodies were not designed to last. But I said that they were designed to not last. There's something of heaven in there. And uh, I think we'll figure that. The tent eventually comes down. The, the last letter that Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. And he says in, in chapter 4, verse 6, and he's very, very near the end of his life here. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. And this word departure, analusis, it literally means to un, unconnect the moorings. You're in a sailing ship. It literally means it's time. the time of my unmooring is at hand. The time for me to vacate my tent is at hand. And back in, in verse 1, we notice there's this trade-in um, of the tent for a building. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what's he referring to? What exactly is this building that, that we're talking about? Okay, there are several viewpoints about this. So I'll give you, give you what they are. Um, first one is some people think that the building is heaven itself, and some people take it even more specifically and say it's a mansion built in heaven. Um, as Jesus promised in John 14 too, he says, you know, for my, in my father's house there are many mansions. We had some time. It could be. That's one possibility. Another possibility is, is that if you read the text here, Paul is speaking about something more personal maybe, um, something, maybe something we wear, maybe something we're clothed with. So some believe that as you read this in the context, that this is referring to our glorified, resurrected body. And I taught on that last week, so I won't go there again. That's another possibility. There's a third view. That some people believe that the building from God that Paul is referring to is, is what we're going to call a temporary intermediate body, okay, that we receive upon death as we wait for the time when we'll have our resurrected body because there's this um, time that we're waiting. And I, I would suggest there's all these different possibilities um, that you can see in Scripture. And if you want to dig, you'll find a preference maybe, um, but there are strengths and weaknesses with all of them. I would suggest that you don't be dogmatic about things like this. Don't go, uh, uh, don't pour cement and stick your feet and go, this is how it's got to be. This is how I see it. Don't be dogmatic. Um, and I would just say to, to you, um, I, I'm, I'm sharing these different things because, by the way, I don't lean to this last one, uh, but I wanted to teach it. Some people think that there's a, there must be an intermediate body that we enjoy in this intermediate heaven until we get to the new heaven and the new earth. And they'll give examples. Um, they're reasonable examples. One of the examples is, is Moses' um, 
shows up, he dies, but he shows up 900 years later at the transfiguration of Jesus. He's there with Elijah, and the disciples see him, see them and recognize them, and there's some sort of form that they see. So they're thinking, okay, there must be some sort of physical form. Um, okay, that's true. And there are other examples in Scripture. The other examples come up, they, they bring with them some other problems. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm just going to tell you that that's a viewpoint. So I, I will just say that in verse 1, the Holy Spirit is describing our eternity by contrasting something temporary with something permanent. That's clear. Yeah, it's the real world, but there's, a very, there's, a, there's a, another world that's very much as real even, and more permanent. Okay, so then Paul expresses our frustration, which is why we groan. Notice what he says in verse 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Time out. This is an itty-bitty habit trail, um, rabbit trail, habit trail. Clothed with our habitation. Do you know what the outfit is that a nun wears? It's called a habit. It's an interesting topic, something they're clothed in. They call it a habit. Uh, comes from the same word that we're reading here, habitation. And um, I'm not sure that's the 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 Pope's reason to declare that they wear a habitation or habit, um, the Pope would say it's because people of, of God need to be conspicuously visible in the, as they circulate. There's a bunch of stuff there, and I don't mean to go down um, Catholicism. I just want to point out that there's something here about being clothed in our habitation, and there's a parallel. You can look into that if you want. I didn't go very, I didn't go very, deep, in, very deep into it. Verse 3, If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So here's what Paul is not saying, saying here. He's not, he's not expressing the, the pagan Greek view of that day, the view of Plato um, that says the body's a prison, we're trapped, death is good because it frees us to be who... He's not saying that. And, and Paul is not here uh, expressing some kind of a morbid desire for death. He's not... This is not Herman Munster theology, um, you know, wishing he was going to die. It's ex exactly the opposite. What he's hoping for is that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, would return so that there is nothing between Paul and Jesus um, as he's able to relate to Jesus in his resurrected body and, um, and, and, uh, and after his return. And this word groan, it's just what you think it is. It's to sigh with longing. <sighs> it's like, you ever listen to yourself when you get up in the morning? Well, some of you probably spring out of bed. Not me. I slowly turn and protect everything from injury just getting out of bed. And groan, or it's like, <laughs> or it's like. I mean, I spent all day the other day running a compactor on the ground because Lisa and I are trying to build a house. And the next day, I'm telling you what, I was groaning. <laughs> and I think that's what it was. You know, you know. It, it, by the way, this groaning. I think the older you get, the more prominent it becomes in your life. Not maybe not true. That's uh, true. Okay. So, so late in his life, somebody asked um, John Quincy Adams how he was doing. Okay. Here's his answer. You can see the groan in this man, can't you? Here's his answer. John Quincy Adams is very well, sir. He's speaking about himself in the third. Okay. 
John Quincy Adams is very well, sir. The house in which he has been living is feeble. The shingles are coming off the roof. The foundation is a bit shaky, and he has received word from its maker that he must vacate soon. But Mr. Adams is fine, sir, just fine. That's our sixth president of the United States groaning for glory, knowing he's going to vacate the tent. So people want to know what we're going to look like the moment we die. I really think the best answer is just simply better, much better. And I, I, I know that usually doesn't satisfy the question. Um, and that's when all kinds of opinions can kind of start flowing into it. And, they, and some of them could be right. Maybe, I, I don't know. But that's just not the time or the place to get dogmatic. And, uh, because when scripture is not very black and white on a topic, um, don't tie yourself down to um, a, a, a preference your own view of how you would want to insert something. In fact, I'm going to take a rabbit trail here. I'm going to use some words that people who teach preachers say, don't use these words in a sermon, so I'm going to break the rule, but I'm not going to camp out on the words. I just want you to hear them, okay? There are a couple of Greek words, um, exegesis and eisegesis. They sound very simpler. simple. The, the word exegesis means outdraw or draw out. Eisegesis means in draw or draw in. The, the point is this. Exegesis is the process of drawing out from the word of God truth. Eisegesis is the process of putting your preference and beliefs and prejudices into the word of God so that it satisfies your scratching, your itching ear. Exegesis for eisegesis. So because that's a common problem, I have the disease, as do you, to want to put your preference into the word of God when you read it. And it takes maturity and diligence and temerity to fight that urge. Because everybody wants it to say what they want it to say. We do. We want it to say that. And you're better off to find out what it actually says. It will actually bring you lasting peace and hope if you find the real truth in the Word of God. Anyway, so to deal with that, there is an entire discipline of science called hermeneutics. Okay, big word again. We're, gonna, we're done now with big words. And, but it, there's, there's an actual science with rules about how to interpret scripture. So I want to take just a minute on this because I want you to know, here are the rules that typically, typically if you're going to study the word of God yourself or listen to someone else who wants to teach you the word of God, you need to expect them to honor these rules. Okay? Okay, hermeneutics, the study of how to interpret the Bible. Here's five basic rules about about this. Always interpret a text, number one, you always interpret a text in the light of its context. You don't take a verse out of context. Never do that. Number two, you always interpret a text in the light of the words that are used. Number three, you always interpret a text in the light of the grammar, how the words work with each other in that passage. Number four, you always interpret a text in the light of the background in, in which you find that truth. And number five, you always interpret the text of Scripture in the light of the unity of Scripture. Here's what I mean by the unity of Scripture. You never isolate some text, take it out, and put it in the context. I mean, you never do that. You keep it in the context of the entire counsel of the Word of God. There's got to be harmony between what you believe the text is saying and all of the rest of what the Word of God says. You don't interpret a passage in, a, in any way that will conflict with the rest of the Word of God. And it's easy to understand why there is never, there is never actually any conflict in the Bible. 
When you hear people say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself, those are people who have not studied it carefully. They've either got a prejudice, they want to discredit the word of God, or they haven't studied it. An honest study, you cannot find. There are not, there are not contradictions. There could be questions that you can't answer. That's different. And I would tell you this. Anyone who can tell you they can answer every question from the Bible, <laughs> look out. Okay. Anyway, um, you should try to get there. We should all try to get there. But anyway, okay, so it's easy to understand why there, there are no, 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 no um, contradictions because even though God used a whole bunch of different authors to write the whole book, to write this whole passage, we believe that the ultimate author was God himself and he inspired those people and God would not ever contradict himself. So correct understanding of scripture will always have unity. So here's one last bit about this before we hop back off of this rabbit trail onto our passage today. When scripture is unclear for you about some little issue or some important issue, but it's just not really clear, here's home base to run to. Always run home base to the character of God. What you know about the character of God. I mean, I hear people arguing about things like, will Christians go through the tribulation? Will we not go through the tribulation? I believe scripture teaches it clearly, and I could tell you my position on it, that I believe we will not. But it's backed up by the character of God. You can't find a place in the word of God where God makes his beloved be punished for something. It's just just not there. I mean, no, I I, I go down that rabbit trail, and I want to do it right now, but the character of God is always home base for any interpretation of scripture. God loves you. He has your tomorrows in his heart. The way he thinks about you is about your future and your hope. And if you have a scripture that suggests that you think that's not true, you've misunderstood the scripture. Okay, so what's the Bible say? Um, what's the rest of the Bible say about our form after we die? There are lots of passages, um, including the physical appearance of Moses and Elijah. There are other passages that are different. And here's one at Stephen, when Stephen was about to die in Acts chapter 7, he knows he's about to die because they're stoning him to death. And he looks up and he makes this statement, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. My spirit. He knew his spirit was going to be separated from his physical body and he was going to be with the Lord. Here's another one, Hebrews 12, 23. And this is describing dead believers. It says, the spirits of the redeemed in heaven now made perfect. That's good news. So here's what is clear in Scripture. It's very clear. Believers get resurrected. It's very clear. Our physical bodies, whether they're buried or cremated, you know, whatever has happened, they will eventually be resurrected. When Jesus comes back for the church, that's going to happen. That's really clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, other places. That one minute after you die book I mentioned before, here's another quote by um, Irwin Lutzer. One pop... uh, he suggests this, trying to help sort it. One plausible explanation might be that the souls of the departed dead may in some ways have the functions of a body. If that's the case, it would explain how they can communicate with one another and have a visible presence in heaven. If that seems strange to us, it may well be that our concept of the soul is too limited. Ah, I agree. I think we probably have a very limited concept of what the soul is or what it's capable of. So here's Paul groaning for glory, which is what we ought to be doing, groaning for glory, wanting Jesus to come back um, so that resurrection comes. And and verse 5, it answers a really important question. How can we be sure what's really going to happen? How can we depend on this? 
Okay, what's that? And Paul now, he looks not ahead, but he looks back, verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now that word guarantee, I think, is a... It's an unfortunate translation of the word, the Greek word there, arabon, really means earnest, as in earnest payment. Let's read it that way. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as an earnest payment. You ever buy a house or sell a house? The buyer comes in, and they offer a contract, and you agree to it, and they give earnest money. It's supposed to be a significant amount of money to, to, to let you know they're serious, they're really invested in this, but, but the majority of it's coming later. That's what this word is right here. You buy a house, you put down an earnest payment. You, you give an engagement ring because later you're going to give your life by marriage. You, 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 the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit now as, and promises us more later. Now that sounds pretty good to me. I think the Holy Spirit, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is one of the most tremendous, loving things God has done after salvation. After my kids uh, are saved, the thing I wanted for them to do was walk with the Holy Spirit. It's just great. So when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, which happens when you give your life to Christ, you have new desires. You've got new hopes for heaven. And all of that is just a foretaste. It's a preview of what's coming. It's kind of like what Uncle Johnson said, you know, if the crumbs of glory that fall from the master's table are this good, what's it going to be like when we have the whole, whole wolf in glory? So the Holy Spirit is the down payment for what's coming. And, and we know this is going to happen because of what's already happened. So here's the third thing that Paul brings up, our affirmation when we're confident. Verse 6. We are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Here's, here's what he's saying. Even though I've already got this down payment, I want more. <laughs> I want it now. Even though I've got some contact with God, I, I can pray to him, I've got fellowship with him. Even though I've got this inner dwelling of the Holy Spirit, I want the full meal deal here. And this is Paul groaning for glory. You know, this is Paul clicking his heels and saying, there's no place like home. I wonder if they were ruby. Ruby red sandals. There's no place. And, and, and the reason God's people can be so confident is really simple. There are only two places God's people can go. We're either on the earth or we're in heaven. There is no soul sleeping. There's no wandering somewhere in some purgatory. If you're a believer, you're either on the earth or the moment you die, you're in God's presence. Sometimes I've done funerals, um, and, and if you do them typically, and there's a funeral company involved, which is nice, um, I, I, it's personal, whatever, but there's typically a well-meaning you know, funeral director will make a comment when you shift from, if there's a graveside service, you, know, you, have a, you have this service in the building, and then there's a graveside sometimes, and I've heard this kind of comment that, you know, okay, so now we'll go to the cemetery for um, the final resting place of this person. Name them. And when I hear that said of an unbeliever, I, I, I want to somehow figure out a sensitive way to correct that. You know, and I'll say, you know, with all due respect, 
um, I just want to clarify, this is not the final resting place of Terry Fisher, because Terry Fisher is coming out of this grave. He's going to be resurrected. It's not the final. There's a, there's a guarantee. And that's why Paul says that we're confident. So, okay, let's just take a minute and sum up what we've got so far in this study over the last four weeks. We, we, we know that after the believer dies, the body is going to go into the ground to be buried or whatever we do with the body. And at the very instant a believer dies, the spirit goes directly into the presence of the Lord. At the moment that, um, at the moment that that happens, at the moment the spirit goes to be with the Lord, there is a perfection that occurs, an instantaneous perfection of the soul in God's presence. Hebrews 12, 23 describes it like this about dead believers. I read it before. The spirit of the redeemed in heaven now made perfect. We studied this a couple weeks ago. So a dead believer's perfected soul is now in God's presence. And, and, and what will my perfected soul be doing? What will, we, what will it be seeing in God's presence? Well, unless we can deduce some things. Devil's not going to be there. The world, the effects of the world aren't going to be there. Flesh isn't going to be there. So there's not going to be temptation right? I guess. There's not going to be any more persecution, no more mocking me because I'm a follower of Christ by other people in culture or governments or whatever. Um, There's not going to be disharmony. There's not going to be disunity. There aren't going to be fights and quarrels about doctrine among believers. (laughs) I mean, not that I see that a lot, but it's out there. And um, there's not going to be any need to um, fast, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if there'll be any need for repentance. I don't know if there'll be anything that I need to repent for anymore. There's not going to be any more evangelism or crusades or um, witnessing because everybody there is already going to know Christ, right? Um, I- I'm going to be very conscious. I'm going to be very aware. I- I'll be able to express myself, to articulate. I'm going to be able to remember. Remember, these are all scriptural things that we've drew out of scripture. And, and, and then one day, I'm going to reunite with my body, which is going to be in a resurrected form. It's not going to be this tent. Now, I think about this, and um, sometimes I think about, you know, Paul or even more recent people who I believe have gone to be in the Lord's presence, my father, and I think, you know, um, time out. Lord, bless that little one. I don't know what's going on in there, but there's a big world, Lord. Fill them with life and cover the, the staff in there with life. Thank you that you trust us with little ones, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if that, if it's not, it, that doesn't bother me when I hear those noises. I hope it doesn't bother you. It's the sounds of life, right? Little ones have to grow up. You know, they become the terrible twos and all that kind of stuff. And pretty soon, pretty soon a guy can't stand himself and he has to marry her because she's so wonderful. Okay, I don't know where it happened. Anyway, so um, that didn't come out right, did it? <laughs> So you'll pray for me later, because whatever. <laughs> anyway, so, um, I mean, I think about people who have been with the Lord for so long, Paul, for a couple thousand years, or even just, you know, my dad, who I miss, and it's been a while now. And um, do you remember, as a child, time seemed like it was so long? Like, you know, your parents said, hey, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're going to Disneyland. You just have to wait a week. A week. It's like an eon. The dinosaurs will come and go in a week. I don't know how we do that, you know, um, a week. But as you get older, 
time kind of compresses and a week isn't a deal anymore. A year isn't a deal anymore. It's like, you, you, do you notice that as you get older, time shortens? Yeah. You know? Didn't your kids just go to kindergarten last week and now they are having their own kids? I mean, so our, our perspective of time changes and um, it goes by faster and faster, I think, the more mature you go. I think Moses had it right in Psalm 90. He wrote this, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. You don't worry about Paul and those that are waiting. I have a preferred picture. This is a preferred picture. I, this is not scriptural. I can't back this up. But about the people that I miss that are gone, that are in Jesus' glory, I don't think there's this long waiting thing for them. I think time is different somehow. This is just an opinion. I'm not teaching this as doctrine. But it's almost like I, I think about this with my father, that he's stepping, you know, he's stepping across the tape, you know, the finish line tape. And as he does, he steps over, and I'm coming right behind him. Could be true. Um, I don't know, but um, I'm just not worried about it. So I want to close with this story I want to read to you. And it really fits in a funeral service, but it goes with our passage. And, um, um, and so this is this conversation between uh, a human being and God. And in this conversation, God is called Mr. Tentmaker. Okay? And, um, and this is the story of this person who, who grows older and then goes to the hospital. Mr. Tentmaker, it was nice living in this tent when it was strong and secure and the sun was shining and the air was warm. But Mr. Tentmaker, it's kind of scary now. My tent is acting like it's not going to hold together. The poles seem weak and they shift with the wind and a couple of the stakes have wiggled loose from the sand and worst of all, the canvas has a rip. It no longer protects me from the beating rain or the stinging flies. It's scary in here, Mr. Tentmaker. Last week, I was sent to the repair shop, and some repairman tried to patch the rip in my canvas. It didn't help much, though, because the patch pulled away from the edges, and now the tear is worse. What troubles me most, Mr. Tentmaker, is that the repairman didn't even seem to notice that I was still in the tent. They just worked on the canvas while I shivered inside. I cried out once, but no one heard me. I guess my first real question is, why did you give me such a flimsy tent? I can see by looking around the campground that some of the tents are a lot stronger and more stable than mine. Why, Mr. Tentmaker? Why, why did you pick, pick of such poor quality for me? And even more important, what are you going to do about it? Then God speaks. Oh, little tent dweller, as the creator and provider of tents, I know all about you and your tent, and I love you both. I made a tent for myself once, and I lived in it on your campground. My tent was vulnerable too, and some vicious attackers ripped it to pieces while I was still inside. It was a terrible experience, but you'll be glad to know they couldn't hurt me. In fact, the whole occurrence was a tremendous advantage because it's this very victory over my enemy that frees me to be a present help to you. Little tent dweller, I'm, I'm now prepared to come and live in your tent with you if you'll invite me. You'll learn as we dwell together that real security comes from my tent, from my being in your tent with you. When the storms come and you can huddle in my arms and I'll hold you. When the canvas rips, we'll go to the repair shop together. Someday, little tent dweller, your tent will collapse for I have only designed it for temporary use. When it does, you and I will leave together. I promise not to leave you leave before you do, and then free of all of that would hinder or restrict, we will move to our permanent home and together forever rejoice and be glad. It's just a story. If you don't believe this story, 
you've taken the blue pill and you're just believing what you want to believe. This story is the red pill. This story is the truth. And Paul saw it. No wonder he was groaning for glory. Let's pray. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I want to thank you, God, for the tender, loving care that's in your heart and on your fingertips for us, your children. Lord, most of us, if not all of us, are saved. Save us, Lord. Be our Savior, be our God, be our friend. Be inside the tent with us, Lord. We invite you. And God, I pray for sensitivity among all of us on this topic because the topic is scary for many that don't know you. And Lord, it's scary for some that do know you. We just, Lord, need more faith. Fill us, Lord, with faith and fill us with life. We're thankful, Lord, for your loving kindness in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you... uh...